Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. ago, I was at a local coffee shop, and they had a seasonal uh, menu item that I had never heard of before, and I kind of like those froofy coffee drinks, and I, it, was, it was peanut butter and jelly latte. Doesn't that sound amazing? <laughs> and so I, I, asked, I asked the barista, well, what's this drink all about? And so he says, it's good, but you know, it's made with almond milk, and I just need to let you know that because that's not for everybody. I said, well, do you like it? And he goes, well, yeah, I like almond milk because I'm a vegan. Now, in case you don't know what a vegan is, a vegan is someone who has cut out all animal products out of their diet. So meat, dairy, eggs, etc. And I've always found vegans to be fascinating because it's principled behavior. So I just asked him, I said, so, well, what caused you to be a vegan? And what I didn't realize is that that one question now drew over three other employees from the coffee shop, all of whom were vegans, and all of whom wanted to tell me why they're vegans. And so it's kind of a funny scene. I'm, I'm, I'm standing there with four of these 20-somethings, you know, with their tattoos and piercings and cool clothes and, you know, me. <laughs> you know, I haven't even ordered my drink yet, and uh, we're, we're all just chatting. And so then one of them asked me, so are you a vegan? I said, well, you know, no. I mean, I've thought about it before, but, but no. And, and what I assumed was going to happen was, that they were all going to kind of gang up on me and start evangelizing me to become a vegan. But almost the exact opposite happened. The leader of this group says, you're not a vegan? Good. It's torture. <laughs> I go, what? He goes, there's so many foods that I miss. I go, well, why don't you just stop being a vegan then? You know, and his answer to my question I thought was both honest and very insightful. This is what he said to me. He said, you know, the problem is I've talked so much junk. He used a different word, but he said, I've talked so much junk to other people about why veganism is the right way to go that now I'm committed. And by this point in time, you know, a line had formed and the baristas went back to work. And so I, I went and sat down and as I'm sipping my peanut butter and jelly latte, I started thinking about this young man's statement. Essentially, what he was saying was, I'm not even convinced this is the right thing to do. But I've gone so far down this road, there's no turning back now. And as I thought about that, I thought, boy, that's so true for all of us, isn't it? How many of us do the same thing? We head down a road and think, well, I'm too far now. There's no turning back. Maybe you told a lie to someone. And you let that lie go on for so long, now you feel like there's no way you can wind it back. Maybe you fractured a relationship. And you said too much and you did too much. And at this point in time, apologizing feels like it's just way too late. Or maybe you got yourself caught up in some kind of a sin. 
But you think, I've already spent so much time and money and energy here. I, I've got to see this through. If any of this sounds familiar, then today's message is for you. Today we continue with part four of our series through the New Testament book of James. And our author, the brother of Jesus, begins chapter four by speaking both sternly and lovingly. He has to be stern with Christians who've gone down the wrong road. But then he turns to be loving as he points us toward the way back. So, if you have a Bible, turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible to James chapter 4, and we're just going to read through these verses one at a time and see what we can learn from them and see what we can apply to our lives. So, we're beginning in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. Boy, that's a powerful description of the world, isn't it? We live in a world filled with war and fighting and selfishness, and some people actually resort to murder. There's just one problem. James wasn't describing the world. He was describing the church. James wasn't preaching to some group of pagans out there somewhere. He was talking to followers of Jesus in the church. I mean, this is how he opened his letter in James 1.1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. 12 tribes is a common way of referring to the Jewish followers of Jesus. They were scattered all over the place in, in these little house churches, and somehow James got wind that these churches were fighting each other, and he felt like he needed to address the issue head on. Now, fighting is nothing new in the church. <laughs> There's all kinds of fights that have been going on for centuries. You know, just this past week I was reading about a church that got in this huge fight because they couldn't agree on what the appropriate length was for the pastor's beard. True story. I read about a church that was fighting over the fact that the budget was off by 10 cents. Someone settled the dispute by donating a dime to the cause. There was another church that fought over whether or not their cafe should sell deviled eggs. <laughs> Scrambled eggs, okay, but deviled eggs? Hmm. But here's my personal favorite. True story. Honest to God. A church got in a massive fight over the use of the term potluck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> We're Christians. We don't believe in luck, right? It's got to be about blessing. But I can tell you this. I've been to a lot of potlucks, and what's in some of those pots, it ain't a blessing. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> but listen, you know, the fights are nothing new in the church, right? But at the outset of James 4, he wasn't talking about the minor humorous church skirmishes that we get into. He was talking about the real thing. Christians were fighting for real, and the result of some of these fights was bloodshed. And the ironic piece is some of these Christians were fighting to protect the name of God. Doesn't that, doesn't that seem backwards? And so James, when he heard about this bad behavior, he was livid. And so he continues in verse 2 of James 4, he says, you covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Essentially, James questioned everybody. Hey, is anybody praying about this? 
Are any of you guys bringing your quarrels to the Lord in prayer? I think he knew the answer to the question before he asked it. The answer was no. And you and I do the same thing, don't we? When conflict arises in our lives, isn't it incredible how many of us clench our fists when we should bow our knees? How many of us load our guns when we should lift our prayers? I mean, how many Christians, when conflict arises, take matters into our hands when we should lay matters at the Lord's feet? James is saying, you're not even praying about this. It's amazing how quickly conflict can transform Christians into atheists. And so then he shifted away from no prayer to selfish prayer. Verse 3. He says, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, James is saying, okay, some of you are praying, I'll give you that, but you're praying for the wrong things. You're just praying that, that God gives you great blessings in life, but you're ignoring the massive issue, kind of like a bank robber asking God to not let him get caught by the cops. He's saying, you're, you're missing the biggest thing here. And again, we struggle with this stuff today too. I hear it a lot. People who should be praying for one thing, but they're actually asking for another for their own pleasures. You know, I've heard people say, God, please help my, my girlfriend and I to stop fighting. The problem is that your girlfriend and you are living together unmarried. Let's pray about that. God, please give me a job that pays more money. You know, inflation, price of gas, all these things going up. No, the problem is you buy too much stuff off of Amazon. Okay, let's pray about that. I've heard people say, God, please let me get good news at my doctor's appointment on Friday. The problem is you've been ignoring your doctor's advice to eat healthy. And, and, and now you're just indulging. Friends, listen, we can't pray our way out of what we keep choosing our way into. And James is saying, listen, you're, you're, you're making all of these choices. You're, you're, you're praying with the wrong motives. You're trying to solve the problem the wrong way. And he was so upset that he leveled these strong words. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that a friendship with the world means enmity toward God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Ouch. I mean, these are strong words. What, what James essentially said is, what we're trying to do is simultaneously have fidelity and adultery. It doesn't work. And he uses this illustration of a marriage. When, when you're married, you make a commitment to one spouse and that relationship becomes the, the most important human relationship that you have. Does that mean you can't have friends or spend time with family or others? Of course not. It just means that those things need to be subject to your commitment to your spouse. And when those things threaten that commitment, they've got to be reprioritized. And this is what was happening in the church. Now, I will say this, that this particular verse has probably been unfairly used for Christian-on-Christian -Christian violence. <laughs> you know, Christians use this verse against other Christians. Like, okay, you go to the movie theater, friend of the world. You listen to secular music, friend of the world. You paid how much for those shoes? Oh, friend of the world. Okay, listen. I think that's a misapplication of what James was saying here. See, Jesus never taught his followers to be 
separate from the world, he taught his followers to be set apart from the world. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 17. He said, my prayer, O God, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify or set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus was never saying, you got to be totally separate from the world. Some have tried that. The Amish are an example of this. No, he's saying you're actually sent into the world to live set apart. And so you could be in the world, but don't be such a good friend that you cozy on up to it and it threatens that commitment to Christ. That's why, why James called people adulterers because they had broken their commitment to Christ by getting a little too cozy with the world. You know who gets this? Parents. There are many parents who they see the group of kids that their children want to hang out with, and they understand that in order for this group of kids to accept my child, there's a membership fee. And often that fee comes with changing the way they dress, changing the way they speak, what they put in their bodies, gender identity issues, and a whole host of other uh, beliefs that have no shred of Christ-likeness. Some parents are actually the problem. They, they, they prioritize the best school for their kids and the traveling sports team for their kids and the world's scorecard of success for their kids. And by prioritizing these things, they cut Christian community out of their kids' lives and then wonder why their kids stray. The problem is we have allowed too many things to threaten that commitment. And when that happens, they need to be reset. And that's exactly what James was saying. He was affirming the teachings of Jesus. Saying, you cannot simultaneously have fidelity and adultery. One's got to go. You know, in these first four verses, it, it feels like James is just kind of banging us over the head with the Bible. And he has to be stern. But by verse 5, his tone begins to change. See, the first couple of verses were pointing out the problem. Now James begins to point out the solution. Read with me verse 5. He says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? This verse can be a bit difficult to translate, but here's what I believe it means. He's saying that God is so jealous of the love you keep giving to the world. God loves you so much, he wants that kind of love for himself. It's kind of like being a person who's been cheated on. You were faithful, but your partner was unfaithful. And you yearn for that kind of love they gave to somebody else. You're, you're jealous of it. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, say these things to kind of justify the sin in their lives by, by saying things like, uh, you know, I, I doubt that Jesus cares whether or not I go to church or read my Bible or smoke pot or sleep with my boyfriend. He's got much bigger issues that he cares about. Where do you get that from? I could tell you that doesn't come from the Bible. The message from the Bible is Jesus does care. He cares so much that he's jealous of that kind of love you give to other things. He wants that kind of love. He wants to be priority number one in our lives. And so the bad news is, 
we mess up. We often go down a road where we go too far. We think there's no turning back. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. There is a way back. Verse 6. But he gives us more grace. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you just need to stop and read it again. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You want to know the secret to getting back on track with God? Humility. You see, he says he will give grace to the humble. More grace. You know what grace is? Grace is undeserved kindness. Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. If Jesus repaid evil for evil, that's not grace. That's called karma. And people who believe in karma, what they believe is this impersonal Eastern religion that somehow is supposed to be the great justice system of the universe, that whatever you put out into the universe will come back upon you. So uh, karma teaches that if you steal from someone, then expect that someone's going to steal from you. If you harm someone, expect that someone's going to harm you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad Jesus doesn't practice karma. Jesus practices grace. Because if he repaid me, all the evil that I did to him, I'd be dead a hundred times over. But instead, he pours out grace upon us. But if you are proud, you don't receive it. Here's the best definition I can give us for pride. Pride, in two words, is me first. Pride elevates self above all things. Pride is constantly looking to gain, even if it means others have to suffer. Pride is the confidence I can win everything, solve everything, and control everything. And pride believes if there's any mistakes along the way, the only logical explanation is it's someone else's fault. Pride is among the most subtle and most destructive sins we could allow to run rampant in our lives. In fact, the writer of Proverbs said this in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The promise of scripture is that if you live as a proud person, it's eventually going to lead to a downfall in your life. That's why he said God opposes the proud. Didn't say God tolerates the proud. He said he opposes them. That means if you're on a team and you're looking to the left and the right and none of your teammates are God, you're now going against him. And that's terrifying. When you're proud, God's on the other team. And he's coming against you. He says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. The humble person is not the one who says, I got this. I can fix this. I got myself into this, I'll get myself out of this, always have, always will. I am enough. That's the voice of pride. The voice of humility says, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And when you do that, he opens the floodgates of his grace. One of the most influential Christian preachers of the 19th century was a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Listen to these beautiful words he wrote 
about the grace of Jesus. He says, sin seeks to enter, grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck. Grace comes to the rescue. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains like the ark. This is the kind of grace offered by Jesus to those who are humble enough to receive it. And this kind of grace is so difficult to comprehend. Uh, why would Jesus love someone like me despite what I've, de- what I've done? Now, here's a good way to understand it. I want you to picture the person who loves you the most. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent, a child, a friend, whomever. I want you to picture that person. And I want you to imagine walking up to that person and slapping them across the face and spitting on them and saying the most cutting, meanest words that your heart could possibly dream up. And they respond by getting right back in your face, looking you in the eyes and wrapping you in a hug. And so you shove them away and you scream at them again and you curse at them again. And they come right back and bring you into a warm embrace and whisper in your ear, I love you and I'm never going to leave you. The proud person stands there, arms at their side, waiting for the hug to end and walking away, never receiving this grace. But the humble person, when they realize that someone would love me despite the fact that I've constantly tried to push them away, and they would wrap their arms around the loving person and weep on their shoulder, understanding that this love is incredible and I receive it. Friends, if you want to find a way back to God, the secret is humility. And as we read these next couple of verses in James chapter 4, James gives us very critical steps to get back on track with God. If you've gone down a road that you think is too far to turn back now, I want you to pay attention because James lays it out. There is a way back to God. So if you're taking notes, here's the first one. Number one, fall down. What do I mean by that? Let's read verse 7 of James chapter 4. He says, quite simply, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves to God. The word submit means to willingly allow yourself to be under the command of another. It's actually a military term. It's putting myself under someone's charge. Submitting to God means I stop saying, I can fix this. I'll do things my way. And you start saying, God, doing things my way is what got me into this mess. I'm going to do things your way. I submit to you. I willingly give you control. The great King David from the Old Testament was someone who frequently wandered away from God, frequently went down the right road, but he knew the way back. And listen to these words of submission that he penned in Psalm 25, verse 4. He says, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. This is a powerful, practical example of submission. Look at the first part of that. He says, show me your ways. This is, this is submitting to God by asking him, will you open my eyes 
to what is it that you want me to do? Teach me your paths. In other words, God, I submit to you, help me learn this lesson now so I don't keep repeating the same problem in the future. Guide me in your truth. This is submitting to God saying, I'm going to line my life up according to your word and not according to my feelings. I'm not following my heart anymore. See, the prideful person says, my hope is in me. Look what David says. My hope is in you all day long. That is a beautiful prayer of submission. This is what it means to fall down before God. It takes humility to admit that you're wrong and to say, God, here I am. What do you want from me? That's a critical first step. The first step, fall down. Here's the second one. Come near. Come near. Let's continue to read verse 7 of James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What does it mean to come near to God? Well, I think there's some of the obvious things like being in church, which many of you are doing right now, so we're off on the right foot. But it's also worshiping him, calibrating our hearts, reminding our hearts to who Jesus is and what he's done, being in Christian community. All of those things are very obvious examples of coming near to God, and they are powerful and healthy. But I think a critical piece in understanding what it means to come near to God is this, that I have to believe that Jesus wants me near. See, this is actually counterintuitive. Think about this. When you hurt another person, you feel guilty. You don't want to be around them. I mean, how many of you have experienced having unresolved conflict with someone, and then you find yourselves in the same room? It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. We think, all I want to do is just get as far away from this situation as possible. And that's how many of us respond to God. We sin against him. We, we do things we shouldn't have done. We start going down a road that moves away from him, and we feel so guilty that we begin to distance ourselves from God. We start cutting out the church. We start pulling no-shows on the small group. You start ghosting your Christian friends, which is exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Why? Because he understands this. Look again, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Those two things go together. You see, when you come near to God, one of the natural implications is it forces the devil out. When you're in the presence of Jesus, Satan has no place there. And so when you, when you come near to God, it's going to drive the devil away. Remember when James said anyone who's a friend of the world is an enemy of God? He says almost the exact opposite here. He says, when you become a friend of God, now the devil has to go away. He has no place in your life. But see, if, if you can allow guilt to drive you away from God, that's what the devil wants. He's in your ear whispering, you messed up, you're too far, just keep going down this road. God doesn't love you, Christians don't want to be around you, and you've got to silence that noise and say, no, I'm going to come right near to God, believing that he actually wants me. He loves me. And he's waiting with open arms for me to come back. I love these words the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near 
to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Running far away is what got us into this mess. That's not going to help. We've got to draw near. We've got to come near. Get into his presence. So if you want to find your way back to God, number one, fall down. Number two, come near. Here's number three, live out. It's not enough to just say it. you got to live it out. Let's continue to read verse 8. James says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What in the world does this mean? Well, what he was saying is that if you really are serious about making change in your life and submitting yourself to God, then you got to live it out. You can't just speak it out. you got to live it out. And so washing your hands, this is a, a symbol of cleansing yourself from impurities. It's what the Old Testament priests used to do before they walked into God's presence. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus, it makes us double-minded. And so to purify our hearts means we take those idols and we throw them into the fire. And so what does this look like in our, in our modern context to wash our hands and purify our hearts? This means cutting out people and places in our lives that are threatening our commitment to Christ. For some of you, that may be a friend, a coworker, a family member. Some of you might need to ask your boss to change the location of your office so that you can get away from people who are affecting you negatively every day and causing you to, to stumble. For some of you, you're going to have to block some contacts in your phone because there's certain people in your life that when they call or text, you don't have the power to resist that temptation and you respond and get sucked right back into the vortex. So you just gotta block them outright. Speaking of phones, some of you might need to trade in your smartphone for a dumb phone. Some of you might need to get a flip phone that doesn't have social media and internet access so that you can get yourself back on track. This is what it means to live out, take some steps. And then he says, in verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, people who are not Christians might look at this and say, if this is the marketing campaign to get me to become a Christian, no thanks. Grieve, mourn, wail? Uh, that sounds bad. Here's, here's what James is saying. Take it seriously and respond appropriately. Think of it like this. Uh, Grieving, mourning, and wailing is an appropriate response at a funeral. If you've ever been to a funeral, you see people doing that kind of thing all the time. This is even true with, with Christians who have lived for Jesus their whole lives. Laughing at a funeral is totally inappropriate. You know, I've been to many funeral services. I've led memorial services of men and women who left no doubt in anybody's mind where they're spending eternity. You know, part of these services, you hear testimony after testimony after testimony of how they lived for Christ and loved others and sacrificed themselves. And, and even the person who passed requested before they died, I don't want any of you people crying at my funeral. I want you celebrating. You know, and, and even in these memorial services, there's laughter. But the prevailing emotion is sadness. Why? Because we miss them. We miss being around them. We miss hearing their wisdom. 
seeing their example. Yes, we're happy and rejoicing that they're in heaven, but right here, we feel sad. And if somebody who claims to have had a genuine relationship with that person is just laughing and carrying on the whole time, you would question whether or not you really had a genuine relationship with them. And that's precisely what James is saying. That if you have a genuine relationship with Christ and there is some kind of sin issue that has occurred, some kind of road that you went down, you shouldn't be carrying on laughing as if nothing's wrong. You shouldn't be proud of your sin. You should be broken by it. In Bible times, they used to wear sackcloth and cover their head with ashes whenever they felt broken by their sin. The sackcloth was a, made out of goat hair, and the ash would darken their face, and the idea was they wanted to communicate to everyone, I'm so sad over what occurred in my life that it makes no sense to keep up a sophisticated appearance. I want others to know that things are not normal. And that's the idea of what James is getting at. That if you've gone down the wrong road and if you're really serious about living out your faith, you've got to show it. And what this might look like would be apologizing, uh, acknowledging your missteps, putting in the hard work to rebuild trust with people. I mean, if you knew someone who had patterns of destructive behavior in their lives, and maybe that behavior has even negatively impacted you and your family, and then one day they showed up at your house and said, I'm a changed person. From here on out, I'm not doing any bad things ever again. You don't have to worry about me. You could trust me. Your response would probably be, I'll believe it when I see it, because actions speak louder than words. And many times when we, we want to get back on track with God, we think, okay, here we go. It's not enough to say it. You got to live it. You got to take it seriously. And if you do, here's the promise, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. How many of us spend so much time and energy trying to lift ourselves up? I got this. I'll put in the effort. I'll get myself out of this trouble. We try to achieve and advance so that we could change the narrative of our lives and win some recognition and affirmation from people. That stuff doesn't work. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, let's let Jesus do the heavy lifting. And at some point in time, this is what happened in the life of James, our author. We can learn from the scripture that there's good evidence to believe that James actually thought Jesus was the counterfeit. James and his other brothers, one time, they, they tried to convince Jesus to walk into a death trap. James was not a follower of Jesus, but at some point, something in his life changed. At some point, he crossed that line of faith, probably when the risen Jesus appeared to him after dying on the cross. And at some point in time, James humbled himself before Jesus and believed. How do we know this? Well, James actually gives us an indication in the very first sentence of his book. We read it earlier. If you blinked, you may have missed it. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered. Don't you find it interesting that James didn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus, but as the servant of Jesus. 
Let me tell you something. If I knew someone famous, I would want all of you to know about it. Okay? If I was the brother of Jesus, I would lead every introduction that way. So uh, have you heard of Jesus Christ? You know, he did miracles. Crowds followed him everywhere. You, you heard of him, right? Remember, remember he, died, he rose back from the grave? He, yeah. My brother. We were like this our whole lives. I was his favorite brother. He told me that over and over again. So you may want to pay attention to what I say because I'm the brother of Jesus. But yet that's not what James did. James begins his letter by saying, I don't want the world to know I'm Jesus' brother. I want the world to know I'm Jesus' servant. At some point, he submitted himself to Jesus. He, he fell down before him. He drew near. He came near to Jesus, and he began living it out. And James went from being humble to being one of the leaders of the church. And friends, if you've gotten on a road that you think you've gone so far down, now you're committed, I've got some good news for you. There is a way back. There is no situation that cannot be redeemed. There is no relationship that cannot be restored. There is no heart that cannot be repaired. The grace of Jesus is offered freely to you. Are you humble enough to receive it? And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you sense that God is really speaking to you and stirring up some things in your life. I'm standing before you today to tell you, you don't have to keep going down the wrong road. Today's the day that you can turn back. Today's the day you could commit or recommit your life to Jesus. And in just a moment, I want to lead us in a prayer, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of recommitment maybe for you, of just simply praying through these very things James said. And so if you've never submitted, if you've never given your life to Jesus, surrendered control to him, there's no time like the present. Let's do that right here, right now. I'll give you the words, but you have to own them and believe them in faith. So I want to invite everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to take a good long look inside your heart. And if you've never invited Christ into your life, then in the silence of your own heart, I want you to repeat these words after me. Jesus, today I submit to you. You pray those words straight back to him. Jesus, today I submit to you. I confess my sins to you. They are many. Today, I want to come near. I believe in faith you died on a cross. And I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you cleanse me. And help me live out this faith. Will you change my heart from the inside out? so that I could leave my old life behind and follow you in a new life. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So if you prayed this prayer for the first time today, I want to encourage you to tell someone. 
if you're watching this online, there's links that you could follow. But for those of us who grabbed a program today, there's a perforated card at the bottom with a little box that says, I said yes. I want to encourage you to fill that out, check that box. And in just a minute here, our ushers are going to come, our ushers are going to come forward to take today's offering. You just drop that perforated card right in the bag. And we'll follow up with you to help you grow, help give you some resources. And maybe that's where some of you are. You're feeling, I'm just kind of stuck. I'm not really growing. I don't really know what to do. I just know I need to do something different. We want to make the next step abundantly clear. Here's what, here's what you can do. Take out your phone and text the word NEXT to 909-281-7797. This is our Sunrise number. And we have staff members who will exchange a few messages with you and help you take that next step. Maybe it's joining a small group. Maybe you want to do something productive with your hands and serve at the church. You might need somebody to talk to or some kind of help. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Or you can stop by the next step table in the lobby. Big sign there, it's clear as day. There's people waiting right now to have that conversation with you. Friends, next week we conclude our message series through the book of James with a message about keeping the faith. Do you know someone who's barely hanging on, someone who's ready to quit? Be praying about who you can invite with you next week to hear this powerful word. But until then, let's remember want to make our way back to God, it starts when we fall down. Submit to God. Give Him control. And then come near. Don't let your guilt keep you away. Jesus is waiting for you with open arms. And let's live out. Let's not just say it. Let's show it. And if we are willing to do this, if we are willing to humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up. You believe it? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for not punishing us or making us jump through hoops, but for welcoming us and pouring out your grace upon us. May we shed our pride today and receive it. Lord, even now as we're getting ready to give offerings, may this be an act of humility, of trust and saying, what I have was given to me by you in the first place, Lord, so I'm returning this in faith. And Lord, I pray that you use these gifts of money to bless others, to to help multiply the work of the church. Lord God, I want to lift up anybody in here who's been owned by pride, who's been wrestling you and fighting you and going down the wrong road. Lord, I pray that today that pride would shatter and in humility you would lift them up. Lord, we need you. God, help us to stop believing that we can do this on our own. We can't. We humble ourselves today. At the mighty feet of Jesus, we pray. And if you believe this in your heart, then let the church say, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. 
And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.